0: My name is Tony, and I'm an alcoholic. Good morning, everybody. <clears throat> if things had gone as they should have, and I w- as I would like them to have gone in my life, you wouldn't be up at seven in the morning, sitting here in Oklahoma City. You'd be at the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C., at an honors presentation where I was one of the honorees going to receive an award and a medal for the accomplishments in my life, and probably under the category of Renaissance man. But here it is, two minutes after seven, starting to rain in Oklahoma City, at a gathering of alcoholics. And I'm going to share my story. I've had occasion to tell my story several times over the years. And except for certain major essentials, it doesn't come out the same way. It isn't always the same thing because I use a different uh, motivation. I speak from a different level or plane of my experience. And people who have come to these meetings say, you know, the gist of your story is the same but I never knew this I never heard this before and that's the way it went some of the things I've said at meetings I hadn't said before new revelation for me I never was at a loss what to say Uh, although I'd put my watch down which I'm going to do Uh, time ran out before I did I like the topic of this meeting uh, spiritual odyssey I'm of Greek descent and I was raised by immigrant first generation immigrant parents And I was very early schooled in in Greek mythology and Greek history. We were one of six Greek families living in a small resort town, Long Beach, Long Island. And for some reason, we were a real minority, not just by number, but a variety of other things. We were a minority in I remember in the early days in the early 30s right after the depression you know we would be referred to as the grease balls or used to go to caddy and the caddy master would call me blackie come on blackie get a bag and i don't know how he ever got the name blackie but i had a great tendency to tan and we lived in the resort beach area And I'd get very tan over the summer and stay that way. And I'm not sure why, but I remember the rest of us felt like a minority. But that changed. And certain circumstances have occurred in life that have had a major effect. Because I have a certain awarenesses and I've done a lot of uh, recapitulating and looking back in my life trying to find out what are some of the earliest thoughts I have and how far my memory can go back and I know an early thought I had was that I wanted to be recognized I wanted to be acknowledged I wanted to have something to say I wanted to be heard I wanted to be applauded and I was given a couple of gifts that gave me cause to think it like this at 14 years of age I was built quite strong for my age and I had this gift of being able to throw a football about 65 yards and throw it with a spiral and throw it at a good height good velocity and for a 14 year old I was pretty good and because of that I was the first high school freshman to make the varsity football team they had what they call a freshman team, a frosh team. And uh, freshmen were put on that team. And I was put on the varsity team. And this talent of mine of throwing a football, well, earned me this distinction. And at first, my first year, I would be put in and... Uh, even though I was good size for 14, uh, I was still smaller than the rest of the guys who were juniors and so- seniors in high school, who made up the bulk of the team. But I would put in, be put in for strategic plays, and I'd get back there, and we had a play, and I'd throw the ball 60, 65 yards, and make a touchdown. And pretty soon, I started getting. Recognition in the local newspaper. You know. The following year, I put on some extra weight. I had uh, also p- made the wrestling team and I became a good wrestler. and uh, I worked on my bulk and I developed a good sized chest and a trim waist and strong legs. and uh, they gave me an extra duty on the football team of running the ball. And I was fearless. I went with others' freer to tread. And I got the moniker in the n- newspapers, the Greek Blitzkrieg. <laughs> and this was the late 30s, and Hitler was running all over Europe with his tanks, and they had the uh, Blitzkrieg going into Poland and other countries. And I became the Greek Blitzkrieg. And pretty soon I heard that scouts college scouts were coming to look me over and there was this uh, prospect of going to college on a scholarship my parents were poor, uh, relatively poor we we just suffered the depression it was still going on in the middle, late thirties and this looked good because otherwise it didn't look like I could go to college my folks didn't have the money And what do you know what would happen but uh, World War II got going. And uh, pretty soon the furor of the war and the prospects of uh, the United States getting into the war were very obvious. And there was a new level of hysteria, a new level of uh, social consciousness and concern. And... When I finished high school, rather than go into the army or get called up right away, I matriculated at college and hoped that that would give me some little deferment, uh, temporary anyhow. And along with that, I joined a reserve uh, unit that was with the signal corps. And they would give you an extra deferment if you went to signal corps school. And uh, I would—I went to signal corps school and uh, went to college at the same time at night, and I got a deferment for about nine or ten months. In 1942, I was called up actively into the army, and all these plans and all these dreams I had. Uh, going to college on a scholarship of pursuing that career and seeing my life unfold totally changed I remember being sent to uh, Fort Dix, New Jersey and uh, here I am 19 years old hadn't been far from Long Beach still a babe in the woods uh, wet behind the ears in a way we were a very close family close family values do the right thing respect your elders respect your family respect your society and I was imbued with these at least I thought I was Uh, I look back and I see my brother and my sister one is older than I am one is younger They learned these things. It didn't seem these lessons stuck with me. And I went into the service. I went in as a private. I went into the signal corps. And I was shipped to Camp Crowder, Missouri. And there I was exposed to a whole uh, different element of society. And I saw the guys who had all the power. All the guys who had all the authority. Uh... guys who are loud-voiced telling others what to do as I surveyed the uh, world scene I saw the chaos that was developing with the war and I says I don't want any part of this I didn't have a fierce sense of loyalty to go and fight I didn't have any desire to get randomly killed Uh, I said, i got to get out of this man's army. And I started figuring out ways to get out of the army. Uh, And this was one of my early deviations, uh, straying from uh, the standard path of how people behaved. While I was in uh, high school and played football, I had gotten hurt. I had injured my knee. And... uh, I had noticed the first two years was I was a rah-rah. They called me the Golden Greek at that time, Uh, along with the Greek Blitzkrieg. And all these things sort of went a little to my head. But I saw that uh, the the scouts weren't looking for me. Even if they found me, there was no place to go. The war was on. That was the uh, preferred route to go. So I knew I wasn't going to be a college athlete or a college star and I said what can I do to get out of this army and I saw friends of mine faking psychiatric illnesses I saw friends of mine faking other illnesses Says, said well I have this injured knee maybe I could capitalize on that and I did I was going to a signal course school they were teaching us code they were teaching us uh, how to climb telephone poles how to set up command posts and at one training session I let myself a controlled slip from the telephone pole and I went down this telephone pole with splinters landed on my knee and shouted ouch, ouch, ouch they put me on sick call And since I had had an injury and I knew sort of how to limp and behave, I pushed this knee injury and I limped. And then they sent me to a bigger hospital to do further evaluation. Just to show you the paradox of this, while I was in the hospital being evaluated for this knee injury, And faking most of the time officers were around by limping. And thinking I was unobserved when nobody was around, no officers. I would go into the recreation room and play ping pong. And I became a good ping pong player even before I went to the army. And we had a little uh, informal ping pong tournament. And here I am claiming I have a bad knee. And I win the ping pong tournament. I said, well, Tony, you gotta behave yourself. You gotta play the game. If you're gonna play the game of having an injured knee, you gotta do that. So I did. And at that time, there was a big push, uh, in the military to get as many guys back into service. There were big plans for an invasion. Uh, the war had heated up. And They were assessing the people to see who would be going abroad. And when they came up to me, they said, Well, you have some minor cartilage damage, and we're going to do surgery on you. I said, No, you're not. And I refused surgery. And they hounded my case, and they told me that if I don't have the surgery, I'm refusing a medical order. I'm a senior officer, and uh, I'm going to be uh, court-martialed. Something in my instinct told me that this isn't the way it goes. You can't be punished for refusing a procedure on your body. And I refused. I received a notice that I was going to be have to appear in 72 hours for a uh, court-martial appearance. I was still 19 years old, not wise in the ways of the uh, legal performances. I called my brother who was in uh, Fort Hood, Texas. uh, I think that was in Texas. Anyhow, what should I do? I called home, I called my parents, what should I do? They said, do what you have to. They couldn't advise me. They gave me the 72 hours to get any kind of uh, witnesses in my behalf. And uh, I didn't, I went to this court-martial where I got the argument from, how I uh, articulated it, I'm not sure. But I expressed my feeling that I didn't think the military had the right to order what I can do with my body. That my body was sacred and any decision to have anything done to it uh, was my decision. I won my case. I was given an honorable discharge and I was given a 15% disability. Now you got to remember this was a trumped up situation. And since I had a discharge coming up and a 15% disability I had to limp. So here I was limping around the camp, and I had a good leg, relatively good leg. I got out of the army in 1943. The war was raging in Europe, in the South Pacific, and I was one of the early veterans dischargees from the army. And the colleges were open, and you can get into any college you wanted. I got into Columbia College, which was one of the premier uh, Ivy League schools. And I started pursuing my uh, first love, which was uh, electronics. I had been a radio ham when I was a teenager. I had built my own radios uh, and transmitters. And uh, I decided to take electrical engineering and become an engineer. Along the way... Uh, I saw this wasn't what I really wanted. And I went to my Veterans Administration advisor, and I said uh, they had passed a new law, Public Law 16, which said if you have more than 15% or more disability, you can pursue vocational uh, Professor, uh, pursue any profession you wanted. Uh, and I went to my advisor, I said, could I become a doctor? Would you pay for me to become a doctor? They said, oh yeah, you get the grades and get into medical school and we'll pay for you to become a doctor. And we'll give you a compensation and pay all your expenses. And in my last year of engineering school, I quit engineering school and went into pre-med and everything, went well, I wanted to keep the timing of my schooling properly. And I had to make up certain subjects. And I doubled up my subjects. And I took uh, inorganic chemistry one and two. I took organic chemistry one and two at the same year. I took 23 credits where 15 to 16 were the average credit. And my college advisor said, uh, Tony, you're not allowed to do that. You only can take 15 or 16 credits. What if everybody did this? I says, everybody doesn't do it. And I'd like to do it. I'd like to give it a try. And I took 23 credits and I made Dean's List. I was burning with ambition. I was burning with desire. And uh, I started setting up my goals again, my goals for the future, My goal is to become somebody. And what better body can you be than a doctor? The most honored profession of all professions. And I worked hard, I got into medical school. Along the way, I met a young lady who was the beauty queen of the New York universities. And she was a Greek girl she was statuesque and beautiful and her name was Aphrodite and she suited her name truly remarkable everybody was after Aphrodite 5 foot 6, 5 foot 7 beautiful black brown eyes beautiful brunette hair she looked very much like Ava Gardner and of all the guys who pursued her I got her She became my girlfriend and my fiance, And then, while I was in my second year, after my second year of medical school, we got married in 1950. And it happened to be on the day Korea was invented. So it was uh, June 25th, 1950. I remember that because as we left the reception, there was all these headlines about the Korean War. I finished medical school got an internship and I was on my way. I did well in medical school. I got a good internship and I felt the world was my plum. Now the one thing I like about this topic, in a way of a spiritual journey, when I heard about that and I heard the first few speakers I says, the way I'm going to approach my sharing is I'm going to take whoever is here, all of my friends here, on a journey with me. And we're going to board a train at a particular point, and I'm going to sort of be taking you on this train with me and making vital stops. Stops in my life that were important and changed the course of my life or change the course of my journey. So this was a, a major stop, this uh, major point in my uh, life, marrying this beautiful girl, uh, graduating medical school, uh, having all my expenses paid, receiving $100 a month uh, for expenses. And in those days, $100 a month was not bad. Uh, My wife graduated as a a teaching degree, and she got a job right away in teaching. Uh, When I got out of medical school, I bought a beautiful green little Chevrolet, and I think at that time it cost about $450. And I was off, and I got this uh, internship in a small town in Stanford, Connecticut. I saw that this had a great potential. People in Stanford used to come up to me and introduce themselves, and they were Greek-Americans from Stanford. And they say, oh, we'd love to have you as a doctor here when you finish your internship. And I looked around and I saw this was a fertile community. It also turned out that the head priest of the Greek Orthodox Church in Stanford was from the same part of Greece where my father-in-law was from, which was northern Greece, and they knew each other well. They knew each other from their boyhood. And when I finally finished my internship, my training in Stanford Hospital, and decided to open up a practice in Stanford, the priest announced in church that we have a young Greek-American boy, he speaks our language, and he's going to be a doctor here. I opened up my practice March 8th, 1954. Within the first week, I had patience. The first day my office opened up, I had patience. Within the first month, there were people sitting in the waiting room. I was the toast of the town. My name was on the lips of all the Greeks and many non-Greeks. Within the first three months of my practice, I was making expenses. I was able to start paying off some money that I borrowed from my brother-in-law and my father. And I was on my way. I couldn't wait to get up in the morning. I couldn't wait to go to work. I couldn't wait to get to the hospital. I can think back to those days and feel the surge of joy and excitement. Here I was, 26, 27 years old. I'm a doctor. We had our first born son. I'm the toast of the town. How much better can it get? Didn't drink. I started smoking a little bit in medical school to get the smell of formaldehyde off of me, but uh, I was able to uh, keep my smoking in moderation. After about a year in this office, my practice got so good, and we had been living in the same house where my office was we had the bottom floor decided to expand and uh, we looked around and bought this big beautiful house on an acre of land with a stone wall around it on the corner in a lovely section of uh, Stanford and everything was as better than I could have expected Nothing devious happening in my life. Thinking that I'm still blessed. Thinking that I still have all these honorable attributes that doctors have. That people have who have listened to their parents and were doing the right thing. And that's how I felt. And the more time went by, the more... Uh, unique, I felt too, and I'm approaching the age of thirty. My practice is going well. We have another child. I this feeling of uniqueness and this feeling of specialness keeps increasing. Uh, I become the team physician for a local minor league football team. We have. I become a police physician uh, and through that I get to know many people in alcoholics anonymous and I become a physician for a lot of AA people and I'm sort of fascinated by these people but in no way ever come close to identifying with them. I try to do things to help them, I give them vitamin B12, I give them tranquilizers, I do things for them. And my life gets even better. I don't know exactly how it happened, when it happened. Somehow one day, I thought, gee, everything's going all right. Money's coming in, practice is getting bigger, Uh, I'm increasing and enhancing my social status in this community, and the feeling comes over me, is this all there is? It all came too easy. It all came just sort of wishing it, wanting it. It seemed all I had to utter was uh, in my own mind, I want to do this. So I thought I would try a little further. and all of a sudden I see this beautiful woman could be female patient it could be somebody else and I say I wonder what would be do. what would happen if I tried to score with her you may not see vestiges now but I was a good looking guy with black hair and fiery eyes and I was a great dancer and uh, you know, You'd look twice if I walked down the street. You may do it today, but for other reasons. And it started to work. I would sort of envision myself in a relationship with another woman. And if I wished it hard enough, it would happen. And it started happening. I'd be with another beautiful woman under uh, improper circumstances i sometimes wonder how I I got here. I said, well, you wished it, you know. And pretty soon I got more involved in situations than I wanted. I found myself having a great compassion for not only alcoholics, but addicts. And I expressed this compassion in one way or another. I showed them uh, a lot of concern. I would help them out. And pretty soon I became uh, sort of the doctor to go to if you were uh, an addict. I'd help them out one way or another. I didn't know all anything about truly about addiction. And how I would help them out is, you know, give them the right kind of medicine. Uh, the right kind of codeine and the right kind of pain pills and the right kind of tranquilizers. And I became very popular. Along the way, a couple of friends of mine came to me and I was regarded as a sympathetic type of guy. Uh, They'd say, my wife is late with her period. Can you help me out? I knew from my training that a good pregnancy is a good pregnancy and it'll last unless it's physically uh, interrupted. But I also know that a certain percentage of pregnancies uh, would miscarry. So I would give this guy some ergo apio pills uh, that were reputed to bring on periods Uh, I read a few things that if you give a smooth muscle uh, stimulant like prostigmine, it might do something so I started helping my friends out and a few of their wives or lady friends would get a period and they'd be very generous and they'd come and they'd give me a case of liquor give me a hundred dollars I didn't solicit that but this isn't bad I had no idea that I was really doing that much wrong and the case happened where this fellow I knew told me his young girlfriend was pregnant could I do something I gave her a couple of shots of uh, prostigmine I gave her some ergo And nothing happened. And she went on to term. And she goes into labor, goes to the hospital, emergency room, and she has a quick labor and in the delivery, and in the process, she lacerates her cervix and she starts to hemorrhage. They have to rush her to the uh, surgery operating room and do a hysterectomy on a 17, 18-year-old girl. In the process, either the doctors or nurses, you know, did you take anything? Did you do anything? Did anybody do anything to you? And even though I had given her this prostigmine and ergo APO, and it didn't do anything, she mentions and utters my name. And the next thing I know, I have police in my office. And I'm charged with contributing to an abortion. Now, at that time, I'm not particularly active with alcohol or drugs. But because I was working hard, I'd learned to take a little amphetamine uh, to keep me going. Along with that, with my newfound prosperity and some of the people who came to me, uh, To do this, they'd give me a case of liquor. I had good liquor in the house, and I started drinking some more. I wasn't a a drinker until I was in my 30s. At that time, 1963, was the time these charges were brought against me. Uh, after the arrest I got bonded out and my wife found out about my illicit visits with other women she filed for divorce I went to court I was found guilty of uh, contributing to an abortion the appeal wasn't Upheld, and on March sixteenth, 1968, in handcuffs and in shackles, I was escorted to Connecticut State Prison, upstate Connecticut. It was the absolute lowest point, the nature of my life. No family. The medical board suspended me, and I made the headlines, television, and escorted to prison. I had a three-year sentence, I was out in about a year with good behavior, and got out of prison. I had nowhere to go, no office, no practice, no family. Some of my loyal patients uh, took pity on me and one of them uh, took me into his home, let me have a room. And I went through the business of trying to make a living, trying to find something. And it wasn't too difficult because I had made a lot of friends. They took great pity on me and uh, a lot of them felt that the, the penalty was too severe. So I was able to get jobs. I got jobs in the supermarket. I got jobs as a, a florist friend of mine who I had delivered twins for his from his wife uh, at one point during my practice. And I behaved myself. I didn't drink. I didn't drug. I kept working. And I went to a friend of mine who I went to medical school with and told him my story and asked if he could help me. And uh, he went to Mother Superior in a hospital in Patterson, New Jersey, and uh, got me a residency. And I was 44 years old at the time, and I got a residency in internal medicine and uh, thought that this was my way back into medicine. And I worked at this residency and tried to be good and uh, impressive and uh, worked hard. I was the oldest guy in the residency program. And I'd get tired and uh, work the emergency room during my training. And I got back on bifetamines. I started taking uh, uppers, and then I discovered Talwin. And it was a non-restricted drug at the time, and I got on Talwin, But I was able to keep it under control and moderated. And after two and a half years at St. Joseph's Hospital, I finished my residency. The people I worked for at St. Joe's thought well enough of me to come and appear with me before the uh, Connecticut Medical Board. And uh, I had found a friend of mine, a lawyer, and he put in a request that I be heard. And I went before the medical board in Connecticut and had my license restored. In that time, I also met my present wife, Nancy. And uh, she knew my story and she was willing to marry me. And she was a single parent at the time with three daughters and we got married I looked around for something to do and I was able to get work in the local uh, emergency rooms and I found that that was very stressful on me and I found I started increasing my uh, use of talwin. I started increasing my use of uh, amphetamines I started uh, using my alcohol and I was able to keep it under wraps. My wife noticed changes in my behavior. And she says, I don't think emergency room work is for you. You ought to try to get back into practice. And I found some good friends who uh, were in Northern Connecticut, Willamatic. And there was an old couple, they were both physicians. She was a psychiatrist, He was a general practitioner. They knew my story and they were willing to help me. And they took me in and let me work in their office. And again, many of those gifts, God-given gifts that were given to me, uh, came out and I did very well. And in a short matter of time, I left this office and had my own practice. Three or four elderly physicians passed away at the time. And I inherited their practice. And in a matter of a year in Rilomantic, I had one of the biggest practices. My wife came to work for me in my office. I had two physician's helpers, uh, a technician, and five people working in my office, working 16, 18 hours a day. And I find myself again uh, resorting to stimulants, sedatives. I discovered Demerol. I discovered... I.B. Demerol I was able to get myself in any position I want up or down uh, excited or sedate drinking all the time confining my drinking to top class liquor thinking that the better the liquor the less it would harm me and working very strenuously I started using maybe one or two shots of Demerol a day, 50 milligrams. I tell this story, and some people don't believe it. Within six months' time, I am using a full bottle, 30 cc bottle, 50 milligram per cc of Demerol. 1,500 milligrams of Demerol a day, and still sort of operatives still working. I find that certain kinds of alcoholic beverages uh, would help. And I found that brandy was a good leveler. Brandy did things for me that uh, beer wouldn't do, that wine wouldn't do. I began drinking brandy and I'd keep a flask of brandy in my car One day I arrive at my office a little late. The office is full. Uh, I know on the way to my office I had uh, gone into the doctor's lounge and taken some Demerol, uh, imbibed some brandy, and I felt real mellow. And I go to the office and there's two young fellows come up to me and say there was the DEA uh, and they'd like to talk to me. I looked at them I said uh, can't you see how busy I am why don't you call the nurse and make an appointment and I'll see you two hours later they come with a warrant for my arrest and uh, escort me out there's headlines in the paper and it turns out that the charges were against me were writing fraudulent prescriptions as a felony again I made the headlines made the television local television Uh, I go to court and I'm found guilty and uh, again I'm sentenced to a minimum security correctional facility this was in April 19 Seventy-seven. I had a priest friend who cared for me and he said, Tony, if you ever want to practice medicine again, if you ever want to uh, join the human race again, you got to show some remorse. you got to show some effort that you want to do something. And I asked my wife to try to find a treatment center nearby. And we live not too far from Hartford. And I know the Institute of Living and some other places in Hartford. And I wanted to be near Hartford, to be near my source of supply where I could get my Demerol and my other drugs of choice. She couldn't get me into those and she got me into a place up in uh, Beach Hill, New Hampshire, Dublin, New Hampshire. I went up there. No knowledge, no acknowledgement, no awareness that I had a drug problem or a drinking problem. It made me feel as if I had it under control. But I knew there was something wrong when I went to this treatment center and I hid an ampoule of Valium in a piece of tissue or a piece of a little rubber you put on your fingers to examine prostates. I put an ampule of valium in there and introduced it in my anus, my rectum. So if I need valium while I'm in treatment, I know where to go. (laughs) I really didn't know what I was doing there. I went to this treatment center because this priest recommended it. And I met a father, Bob, who was a Jesuit head of the program and he was an alcoholic and I told him I didn't think I was an alcoholic or a drug addict he says Tony the best thinking you've done got you here and I would suggest until something better comes along you sort of try it out of respect for him I really cared for him I said okay I went to treatment center I got out I had no practice my medical license was uh, suspended again and as dear Georgia shared the other day she heard that there's one guy in the east who has a record of having two suspensions of licenses Uh, and she was facing her second one or had her second one and I was one of the few doctors in the country who was suspended twice uh, And that was back in uh, the 60s. I went to AA. I decided to do what I was going to be told. And I said, as soon as you get out, get a sponsor. Go to meetings. And I did. My practice had collapsed. We put up uh, all my equipment for sale. We were going to get out of Willimanta, Connecticut. But I had nothing to do for a year. So I went to AA meetings. I really didn't feel I was. I really didn't fit. I really couldn't identify. But I had no place to go. And being the kind of a scam artist I am, I came to the realization that I might as well look like I'm doing what they want me to do. And I started doing what the recovering person would do and saying the right things. And after a year and a half, uh, I found a lawyer who would take my case and I'm going to AA on a regular basis, uh, not drinking, not drugging. Back of my mind was, I really don't belong, and when things get better, if they get better, uh, I'll find out a way to do this again. i would find out a way how to drink and drug. And I kept going to meetings. I kept looking for loopholes. I kept getting more involved with AA. I started to like it. I went before the medical board again. I went with a new spirit, a new feeling. When I was in the anteroom before I went in to see the board, oh God, look at that. Uh, I said to myself, Tony, you don't deserve to have your license restored. You didn't honor this profession. You didn't do anything you should have done. And if they don't give you a license, it's okay. At least you found something else. You found something in AA that gave you uh, hope. And I went into the board meeting, and I knew every person's name, and I knew everything about the people on the board meeting. I'd learned to do that because... When I went to my first IDAA meeting, I heard Gene thats from Texas talk, and he told me how he went before the Texas Medical Board and did that, looked at the people. And I looked at these people, and I thanked them. Whatever they do is okay. Quietly, subliminally, I thanked them, and I said, anything you do is okay. I got my license restored. It was conditional. I couldn't... Uh, Prescribed narcotics for five years uh, I kept going to meetings I eventually said Tony this is a good life it's better than anything you've had in a long time keep doing this for another day if you're not satisfied it's always out there anything you want is out there for you and I kept doing it I kept going to AA after I went to my first IDAA meeting and I heard the hope and encouragement. I said, if I ever get better, if I ever become a doctor again, I'm gonna stay close to this group. I recently got my 24 year medallion. In 24 years, I've only missed three IDAA meetings because of health reasons and recovering from surgery and stuff. And keep coming. People have come up to me and thanked me for the hope that I gave them, people who were getting into license suspensions, people who have had felony convictions. And where I wanted to be an honoree at the Kennedy Center and be recognized as a Renaissance man, I found that the only and best contribution. I could make in society and have any acknowledgement for was my ability and willingness to share the debacle of my life and in sharing this debacle of my life it gave others hope I come here today and there are many more newer people here than older members And it used to be the other way around in the first few years I went there, just a lot of older timers there. And now, there was a time when a lot of people in the audience had heard my story. Now there were so many new people, there's more people out there hearing my story for the first time. There's a few for the second, and less for the third time, you know. And I was pleased to be here, I am pleased to be here. I really thought I had it this time that I could get this down to 45 minutes (laughs) and have 15 minutes to share and open it up and look at that now, it's two minutes of eight but I want you to know if it went the other way you might have been at the Kennedy Center seeing me get a different kind of medal but you see me here in Oklahoma City and uh I know my journey is coming close to the <laughs> this destination. And I can't thank you enough, for those of you who got up and came into this meeting. And uh, I'm forever grateful to so, AA, thank you.